Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine and you're listening to the Philosophy Now show on Resonance FM. This evening we'll be talking about metaethics. With me to discuss this, I have uh, Richard Rowland from the University of Warwick. Is that right, Warwick? Yeah, for the time being. Okay, and we'll be joined by Edward Harcourt from Keeble College, Oxford, as soon as British Rail let him come. Uh, <laughs> Metaethics has been gathering steam in Anglo-American philosophy. That's the stuff we do uh, in Britain and in, in America, rather than, say, on the continent, for much of the 20th century. And it might be said that there is now as much thought given to meta-ethical questions as there is to ethics itself in philosophy. So I thought uh, you, the listener, might like to find a bit about this rising star on the philosophical scene. The word meta is ancient Greek for above or beyond, and a meta-theory is a theory that considers and compares theories. So meta-ethics is thinking about different ideas or theories about ethics, or morality as it can also be called. For example, what is the basic basis of ethics, what is the nature of moral claims, and other such questions that you'll get a glimpse of in this hour. But first we'll start with some introductory questions, which is at least logical. Uh, so Richard, um, meta-ethics, as I say, studies ethical theories. Uh, just to be really basic, what sort of thing do ethical theories say? Um, so ethical theories tell us what we ought to do. So according to... Uh-huh. Um, very well known ethical theory what we ought to do is to promote the best consequences or promote the most pleasure that's called utilitarianism or consequentialism right. and other views disagree they say that sometimes you ought not to promote the most pleasure for instance you ought not to kill one to save many others and that's a different type of ethical theory based and different ethical basis yeah. yeah that will take rights more seriously it will say that every single person has a right to not be harmed for the greater good so uh, you're basically saying there are different ethical theories saying you, that you ought to do different things in the same circumstance, yeah? Yeah, they make different claims about what you ought to do in the same circumstances. So meta-ethics is trying to evaluate between these different theories. Would you say that's a fair um, Well, meta-ethics tries to um, understand what their theories are of. So it tries to understand what it is for something to be right or wrong, what it is for something to be right. the thing that you ought to do. What, did, what does it mean for you to say that you ought to do that? What type of claim is it? Is it just an opinion? Right. Is it a fact that's independent of your opinion? Well, if you make a claim like uh, torture is wrong, is that mm. just an opinion, for instance? Yeah, I think that's a really good basic metaphysical question, a way of getting into right. what metaphysics okay. is about. Um, one question that did occur to me is that doesn't all ethics involve metaethics? I mean, doesn't all ethics try to justify itself from the ground up? Um, so not obviously. So take the theory that I just talked about, consequentialism, which says what you ought to do is always promote the, the best consequences right. or to promote the most pleasure. What you ought to do is always to benefit the general good. Right. Um, even if that involves breaching rights along the way. It's not clear that that says anything about what it means for that to be the case, what it means for it to be the right. case that you ought to do that. It might just be that I think that you ought to always right. okay. act in the greatest so good. It has, ethics, as you're saying, is, has, starts off with an assumption that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and this is what we're telling you what it is. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's good, yeah, that's right. Okay, um, well, then how, how and why did meta-ethics emerge as a separate style of thinking from ethics, then? I think this kind of... What, one story is that 
this never used to really matter too much. Everyone just assumed, well, we know what we're talking about. The justification of moral behaviour, yeah, basically. Well, the the justification of moral behaviour is is the ethical theories. Um, So people cared about that a lot, but they didn't care about what it meant because they thought, well, of course there is such a thing as ethics. And one story to tell is, well, with the rise of um, science, you begin Uh to have this question about, well, what type of thing is ethics? Is it just, is it something we can study with empirical methods? Because if not, well, maybe we should forget it. What you mean, like, put people in... Uh, do laboratory experiments to yeah, see how right. people behave. <laughs> and what would that tell us about ethics? In well, case? it wouldn't, right? So that, that's one way you can see ethics, um, metaethics emerging, but uh-huh. this, with this doubt about whether we can really study ethics in a kind of rigoristic, scientific manner. Okay. So really, eth- uh, metaethical thoughts emerged around the um, turn of the 20th century when some people were thinking... Um, well, actually, all that we should really be talking about is the stuff we can prove, that uh-huh. we can show, we can demonstrate, and we can falsify it, or we can um, verify it. But how do you verify moral claims? How do you verify or falsify an ethical well, claim? Well, maybe I'm going to ask you that <laughs> in a second or so. Um, in fact, why not? I mean, how, how do you go about, you know, the metaethics is about verification of this stuff. How do you go about verifying uh, ethical claims then? Um, that's a tough question. Um, I guess you try to figure out... So I'm going to head back to what I've been talking about. Let's talk about consequentialism again. How how do you verify that? The the morality of an act is uh, judged by its consequences. Yeah. So how would you verify that theory? The traditional way of doing that in ethics is to see what this theory implies in a vast of cases and whether that sits well with what we think about those cases. So a lot of people think that in consequentialism, that, that we ought to always maximise the consequences, do what will promote the best consequences. I think that, that view will entail that, well, suppose uh, if you can save five lives and you're a doctor, you yeah. can save five lives by cutting one person up and, and giving their organs to five patients, right. then we ought to do that. But that's crazy, right? So Why is it crazy? <laughs> anyway, well, that, that, that's not my, for me to answer. Uh, that's not a metaphysical <laughs> question. That's not a metaphysical question. question. Okay, right, I see. <laughs> so I should be neutral on that. But, right. um, uh, but let's suppose it goes against other uh, basic moral feelings you have like people have rights for instance yeah Yeah. so the clash between uh, rights and consequences might give you a rise to say which one is true or yeah yeah. Um, and one uh, way that I like to put it that will sound weird but I'll try and make it sound less weird is that and you ask the question about what makes it true that one theory is right and the other one yeah. is false. So what, what, is there some fact that's making it, it true? My opinion, does my opinion make it true? Does my society's opinion make it true that um, the, the view that we have rights is correct rather than... That's, that view is called relativism, right? Yeah, the, both uh, of those two views are in a sense are different forms of relativism. So one view would be my view makes it true, another view would be my society's view makes it true. Okay, so why does... Why would your society believe something, make something true? I mean, it, it doesn't seem to me that in, say, science or something, the fact that somebody believes something makes something true, right? Or maths, for instance. I want to believe that 2 plus 2 is 5. That, or I believe that pi is 3, which, you know, has been said in Congress and among other exalted places. doesn't make it true, though, does it? So why would it make it true in ethics cases? I guess the thoughts behind people who hold these relativistic views... Well, there are several thoughts. One thought is that, well, what other possible candidate is there? 
Yeah. What other kind of fact could make it true beyond our views or our society's views? Could it be something beyond it, something beyond humanity, some kind of platonic fact? So that's called uh, objectivism about morality? Yeah, I guess, yeah. Yeah, okay. So you've got two things here. You've got whether uh, they're true beyond us or whether they're only true because they're in our minds. Is that... Is that right? Or you can, you can broaden it out a little bit. It can uh-huh. be true because of our constitution, our nature, or true because of the way our society okay. works. All, all these views are, are what you said, a kind of mind dependence in a way, or a kind of social <laughs> dependence, human yeah. dependence, maybe. Whereas, yes, an objectivist view says well, it goes beyond um, humans entirely. And okay, so like somebody who says that God would uh, uh, prescribe morals, that would be an objectivist view of mor- morality, yeah? <laughs> In a s- that's a bit delicate, but yeah, so yeah. In, in a sense, yeah. In what I guess. sense wouldn't it be? Well, there's still some agent telling you what you ought to do. Right. Um, whereas, I guess most objectivists now think that it's independent of any mind or any commands. So, uh, so basically, that, that view says that even if there were no people, then morality would still be true, which doesn't seem to make sense to me. Well, it, it does in a way, because what it says is... It, it can make it in kind of wood claims. So even if there was no morality, it would still be the case that if there were people around, right. then they ought not to act in these ways. Right. And that's a fact that's independent of all humans and what okay. we think or believe. Um, why do you think metaethics has become such an important topic in that area of ethics? Some people think that you've got to get your metaethics sorted before you get your ethics sorted. I think right. that's one reason. I think the reason is actually more subtle. So yeah. what always seemed to be important to me was that all the sceptical challenges to ethics undermine it, uh, are metaethical challenges. So think about the causal origins of your moral judgments, your moral beliefs. Uh-huh. Seems like the reason why we make the moral judgments that we do is that... It's something to do with our upbringing, something to do with our parents, what we were told when we were younger, and how that meshed with what we learned later right. on. But we know that if we'd grown up in a very different set of circumstances, you might well have had different moral beliefs. So, uh, Westerner might so? believe uh, in strongly in individual rights, whereas uh, somebody mm. in China might believe in collective, mm. uh, more collective behaviour, for instance. Yeah. Is that a good example? That's a, that's a very good example. There are studies showing that something like that works in a lot of cases. And the, the worry is, well, how can we, how do we justify our, our belief rather than their belief? And that right. seems to undermine the justification of your moral beliefs, whatever they are. So it seems to be a metaethical worry rather than an ethical worry. Because it's not yeah, about right. what particular theory you hold, it's about the status of your yeah, moral beliefs. It's how you can general. justify your ethics at all, really. Yeah. So that's what you're talking about. It's, you're, you're not in metaethics. You're not trying to derive a theory about what it is right and wrong to do. You're you're asking why it is right and wrong to why what are right and wrong at all, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay. Um, so I think that's that. That's one reason. And um, and and yeah, it also seemed to be that people thought that you could. Oh, sorry. Another thing would be that. With that rise of science and the rise of things like positivism and verificationism, where the thought that if sorry, they're they're different uh, <laughs> philosoph- uh, sci- philosophy of science theories about the nature of science. Yeah, so they'll all claim something like, uh, or in the sense I'm talking about, all I mean is that um, 
the view that the claims that we should be talking about, the only ones that matter are ones that we can prove or right. disprove. Right. Um, with the rise of that came the thought that, well, if ethics falls outside of that, then... You can't prove philosoph- it or disprove it. And philosophers should just forget about it. So in the 20th century, a lot of philosophers did forget about proper ethics and yeah. started thinking about meta-ethics instead. And okay. it was until the 70s before that came back again. So... I guess that's how metaethics um, got more popular and it's still around because of that and because there's all these interesting questions, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, maybe we'll, we'll get to whether um, you know, any actual progress has been made in this area, but, but that's, you know, that's for later. Uh, okay, um, which metaethical positions do you strongly disagree with or particularly disagree with? Um... And could you tell us what they mean when you tell us that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so one view that seems particularly interesting to me is a, a form of moral nihilism. So moral nihilism is the view that nothing is wrong, nothing is right, nothing is good, nothing is bad. And this would be like Nietzsche's view, for instance? Yeah, it's, it's close to that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know enough about Nietzsche to, to know exactly how close it is. Yeah. You might think that Nietzsche had a kind of more narrow view where he thought that morality, when it comes to right and wrong and blame and stuff like that, that, that should that, that, that's not something we can really talk about. But goodness is something we can talk about. So right. Nietzsche liked kind of achievement a lot right. and, and virtue in a sense. You might think that he didn't think that all moral and ethical terms um, that didn't apply. But moralism says that none of them apply at all. Um, mm, but how could anybody believe that? I mean, that, you know, torture is not wrong, for instance. Well, they claim that they don't believe that torture is not wrong. They yeah. believe that te- torture is neither right nor wrong nor permissible. It has no status. But that we can explain right. why it seems so plausible that it is yeah. wrong. Um, and, and it seems so plausible that it is wrong because there are good evolutionary reasons for us to have these concepts of rightness and wrongness. Okay, so we've evolved to have moral mm. uh, beliefs rather than these beliefs being actually right or wrong. Yeah. But if they're not right or wrong, why did you evolve to have them? Um, so one view is that we evolved to have them because... It would help us do stuff. It'd help us coordinate behaviour. Right. So you, what you want, what's evolutionary beneficial is having a society where everyone coordinates and doesn't and, and helps each other rather right. than acts in their narrow self-interest. Okay. But sometimes it's so going it to be, makes you uh, cooperative or social or something. Yeah. The the idea is that um, it's going to be tempting to kind of cheat on the, the people who you're helping with. So right. if you're you're trying to. Um, um, engage in some endeavor where you um you know you do one task and your friend does another task and they give you the stuff that they've farmed or and you give the stuff they've hunted it'd be really tempting to just take their stuff and run right um and one way we can stop ourselves one way we evolutionally developed to stop ourselves doing that and benefit the general good or benefit our own genes was to um have these concepts of wrongness where it's not just that they think that that they don't like you doing some things it's wrong for you to do these things that motivates you because wrongness is more motivating than the fact someone else doesn't like so you're saying some cavemen made up this word wrong and he said right (laughs) that's wrong so you're all gonna if you don't do this we'll be out evolved is that how you think the story works? Well, they, they didn't make up the word. <laughs> right, so they made up what? Well, they, they didn't make it up. It's just over time, they, begun to, they began to see certain things as not being just things that they didn't like, but kind of being things they didn't, that are worse than that, that kind of had authority over them, things that they shouldn't do. 
So that's a different story from the other one you've been telling. That's a story about get, gaining a perception of right or wrong rather than gaining a perception of what is practical, isn't it? The, yes, but the claim is that that perception of right and wrong right. had an evolutionary... We have that because it was evolutionarily beneficial for us to have that. It's meant to be backed up with another claim, which so is... So we didn't, we didn't sort of know about right or wrong until we'd already evolved to have the feeling then. Um, yeah, I guess so. Um, the, the, yeah, I guess so. Um, what? <laughs> okay, so yeah, no, that's that's plausible, isn't it? Because I mean, we had big brains before we got writing or whatever. We yeah. had the capacity for writing before we ever did it, or language, for instance. So perhaps morality is a, a, a different, uh, a, the same sort of thing here. I mean, one thing to think about is that a lot of people think that well, it seems pretty plausible that. For any set of beliefs you have or any set of skill you have, you need to tell the evolutionary story about how you came to have that skill. Right. With beliefs about um, the world around you, even with mathematical beliefs, um, it seems like you can tell that story because it benefits you to have correct beliefs about the world. benefits you to have correct um, beliefs about like, the objects around you and to be able to add up so you don't get, uh, so you don't get the number of animals around chasing you <laughs> wrong right. or something yeah, like yeah. that. But with morality, if, I mean... It depends what type of facts, moral facts are, if there are such facts. But right. it's odd to see how knowing about them would help you out. It seems like it's more likely that um, they, we had our, our moral beliefs are a function of something that helped us to do something evil. So they're like an instinct that we sort of eventually come, came to recognise in ourselves. Yeah, an instinct that's good for the for the group or good for our genes in some way. That that that's the idea. I'm not um, <laughs> defending. This. You're not defending it. Well, <laughs> while we're on the subject, I mean, maybe we could. I could ask you a couple of questions about it. What would this view that uh, we've evolved our moral sense have for metaethics and then for ethics? So there's a lot of dis- dispute about this. I mean, it's got to be evolved in some way. But a lot of people think that it favours either a form of nihilism or some form of relativism. Right. Um, I think the argument for, for relativism is... It's Sorry, relativism being the idea that it, it's true if you believe it or your tribe believes it or whatever, yeah. but then there's no absolute fact of the matter. It's yeah. just relative to your belief. Okay, sorry, carry on. <laughs> sorry. Um, the, the, the view about um, the way that it form, uh, the way that it would support nihilism is relatively clear. So the idea is that um, even if there were no things that are right and wrong, we'd still believe there were. Right. So we have no grounds to think that things are right and wrong just because we believe there are. Right. Um, and because we have no reason to say that, we need them to do some explanatory work in order for them to be justified, in order for us to be justified in claiming right. that there are things that so are So we right explain it in terms of evolution and what's good for the tribe and the species and such. Yeah. Uh, but uh, ultimately speaking, doesn't it mean, if it, in, on either relativism or nihilism, that uh, they're not real, they're just fictions? Yeah. Oh, uh, well... It, that depends with relativism. Relativism right. is quite quite tricky. Um, right. It means that some of the things we think about morality are mistaken if relativism is true. That the, the most clear is okay. the most clear is that suppose that um, us and some people somewhere who think that it's fine to kill people for fun are just uh, are, are disagreeing. Right. We seem like we're disagreeing, they think it's not wrong to do that we think it's wrong to do that. Uh-huh. But on relativism we're not disagreeing because morality is relative to our different groups okay. so we're just saying it's wrong for us and they're just saying it's wrong for them that's not a disagreement at all. Okay, but that doesn't seem to be how people actually treat their own beliefs, right? Exactly, and that, that's a big problem with relativism. Um, I think 
people who believe in relativism now try to explain that away. So what they tried to say is that actually such fundamental disagreements arise not very often at all. And when they do arise, you're not really willing to keep on talking to them. You're not going to say, oh, you believe that yeah. killing people for fun is fine. Well, I'll keep on debating you and I'll show you why you're wrong. Right. You just say, well, no, like, let's go away from you because you might kill me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they tried to tell some story about how it's quite um, complex and our disagreement and attitudes can explain um, why uh, these strange cases, I guess. Okay. They, they don't think it happens very often, I guess, the easiest. Okay, um, might there be some core set of moral values that all people have, that all people have, although people place different emphases on the fringe stuff, uh, an innate grammar for morality similar to our alleged innate grammar for for language? I mean, might we just be evolving towards the moral truth? That's a a great question. Um, I guess it seems plausible that there is at least some minimal shared set of values. One view that seems kind of plausible to me is that the weighting of them changes a lot. So it's true that it might be that for every society they think, at least in some circumstances, it's wrong to kill. In some circumstances, it's wrong to torture. It's wrong to break promises sometimes. It's sometimes wrong to lie. It's wrong to harm these things. Right, okay. But... Uh, but, Edward's just turned up, so... Hurrah. But one issue is that other, some societies have more values. So some societies think that disloyalty and disrespecting authorities is kind yeah. of also morally important, whereas Western societies not, don't necessarily think that. And also these values, and, and when they apply, when it's wrong to kill, when it's wrong, wrong to break promises, will vary massively between societies. Right. OK, I think we're, we're going to go to a track now, so let's play a, a bit of Leonard Cohen and the Stranger song. It's true that all the men you knew were dealers Who said they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter I know that kind of man It's hard to hold the hand of anyone Who's reaching for the sky just to surrender Who is reaching for the sky just to surrender And then sweeping up the jokers that he left behind You find he did not leave you very much Not even laughter Like any dealer He was watching for the card That is so high and wild He'll never need to deal another He was just some Joseph looking for a manger He was just some Joseph looking for a manger And then leaning on your windowsill He'll say one day you caused his will To weaken with your love and warmth and shelter And then taking from his wallet An old schedule of trains He'll say I told you when I came I was a stranger But now another stranger seems to want you To ignore his dreams as though they were the burden of some other Oh, you've seen that man before His golden arm dispatching cards But now it's rusted from the elbow to the finger And he wants to trade the game he plays for shelter 
Yes, he wants to trade the game he knows for shelter. Oh, you hate to watch another tired man lay down his hand like he was giving up the holy game of poker. And while he talks his dreams to sleep, you notice there's a highway that is curling up like smoke above his shoulder. It's curling just like smoke above his shoulder. You tell him to come in, sit down, but something makes you turn around. The door is open, you can't close your shelter. You try the handle of the road, it opens. Do not be afraid, it's you, my love, you who are the stranger. It is you, my love, you who are the stranger. Well, I've been waiting, I was sure we'd meet between the trains we're waiting for. I think it's time to board another. Please understand, I never had a secret chart to get me to the heart of this or any other matter. Well, he talks like this, you don't know what he's after. When he speaks like this, you don't know what he's after. Let's meet tomorrow if you choose upon the shore Beneath the bridge that they are building on some endless river Then he leaves the platform for the sleeping car that's warm You realize he's only advertising one more shelter And it comes to you, he never was a stranger And you say, okay, the bridge or someplace later And then sweeping up the jokers that he left behind You find he did not leave you very much, not even laughter Like any dealer, he was watching for the card That is so high and wild, he'll never need to deal another He was just some Joseph looking for a manger He was just some Joseph looking for a manger Leaning on your windowsill He'll say one day you caused his will To weaken with your love and warmth and shelter And then taking from his wallet An old schedule of trains He'll say I told you when I came I was a stranger I told you when I came I was a stranger I told you when I came I was a stranger Hi, uh, that was Leonard Cohen and The Stranger Song. Uh, welcome back to the Philosophy Now show on Resonance FM. I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and with my guests Edward Harcourt from Oxford and Richard Rowland from uh, Warwick, we're discussing ethics, which is basically thinking, trying to work out what ethics or morality is exactly. Um, I mean, we've heard a lot from Richard, so I'm going to ask Edward, are there any objective criteria by which I can assess the truth or falsity of moral statements? Um, Yeah, thank you. Well, that's a nice question. I suppose let me, before I try and answer it directly, take one step back 
and right. say, I suppose, that is the question with which most people come into meta-ethics. Okay. So when you say to a first or second year student, right, this week, we can't put it off for any longer, it's meta-ethics folks, they think that you're going to be addressing the question, right. what's the criterion for correctness in moral judgment? Right. And very swiftly, they get very disappointed because you get into all these different isms and it seems much more like a kind of analytical enterprise, whereas what they want is a touchstone. They want you a know, way of they thought, judging. Well, I kind of knew what I thought on moral questions, but there are an awful lot of doubts I have. And yeah. when I go into this class, I'm going to come out with a kind of Bible or a Decalogue, which will just tell me what to think, give me some indefeasible way of judging what's true. And I'm afraid meta-ethics can't deliver that, oh, because really? meta-ethics is meta. Meta-ethics is, about the quest- is just about the question whether you can have a touchstone, right? Not give us the but, touchstone. But if it answers the question of whether you can or not, surely then it's in a position to provide one. All right, good. Well, I think the answer is that what meta-ethics is about is whether there can be such a thing as moral truth or moral knowledge right, yeah, that's okay whether there can be criteria bit, yeah. for moral judgment but i don't think that uh after you've studied meta-ethics uh the business of making up your mind on moral questions will get any easier than it was before so the only sadly you right. know disappointingly um in a sense the meta-ethical uh, the, 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 i won't say that the cupboard is bare but there's one particular kind of goodie yeah. that people often expect to have in it in which it really doesn't have in it which is the criterion oh <laughs> which is the criterion we can tell you whether in some other cupboard there's a criterion or not right but it's not in our cupboard because we're doing meta-ethics we're not doing first order ethics okay and i think what most meta-ethicists would say is that actually if meta-ethics mean makes it seem as if the practice of first order moral judgment is easier than it was before you started doing meta-ethics you're probably not doing it very well <laughs> Okay, well, look, if, you, if it doesn't provide you with a criteria for judging ethical mm. theories, then, then why does it matter? Why bother doing it at all? Well, one might say, why bother doing philosophy at all? I mean, well, you, yes. as it were, you know, you're the student who came into the class and it said meta-ethics on the, on the door, right? And you're saying, well, tell me what to believe about moral questions. And well, you should have gone to the first-order ethics class, right? You should, <laughs> this is a kind of analytical project. We're trying to say whether there could be moral knowledge or what kind of meaning does moral discourse have or whether moral discourse can really aspire to truth but Not. you don't what are the answers from to what you're questions? saying you're, you're sounding like you don't think there is any conclusions to be drawn on these issues not at all i think there are lots of conclusions that you can draw on meta-ethical issues right. but um to draw a conclusion on a meta i mean so a view i i favor in meta-ethics right. is, is that is that uh the closest you can is, is that a good way of getting a fix on what it would be for there to be a moral reality or for there to be moral truth is not to think about uh, let's say historical truth or truth in botany where you're talking about properties of real objects that you can touch and feel people who did things um, but as it were what constitutes a what constitutes a well-governed moral discourse what constitutes a well-regulated exchange of moral ideas 
And if we can show that moral discourse is a practice in which we don't just come out with anything we feel like, which we can give reasons, we can pull people up not just for consistency but on other kinds of grounds, then it looks as if it's taking taking on the shape of a well-regulated discourse. Okay. And so we might have something that looks like moral truth. There. So you're giving metaethics the position of like being a, a, a referee between moral theories without like scoring any goals itself if you use a football yeah, metaphor if you like i mean it wouldn't be a very good referee you did score no. goals would it no <laughs> okay uh so uh richard what sort of metaethical conclusion would you uh, argue for then uh, um i'm well that's in progress um okay <laughs> so i'd like well, something what, what like, have you ruled out what have you sort of said no to I would just say that's still in progress too. I, I'd like something like like Edward's position, but uh, there, there are worries with it, of course. So, so it's whether those worries can be answered or whether there's a view that's similar enough to it that can overcome those worries. Um, yeah, but I mean, something like that view has is the ideal, really. You don't want it to be. Um, you don't want it to be too much like um, discourse about natural facts, about historical facts, mm. about Bosnia, isn't it? Mm. But also. Um, and you don't want it to be too relativistic, too subjective, too mere opinion-based, too much like feelings. Okay. So it has to be somewhere in the middle. Um, the, the problem is how to make that work. Through reason, perhaps? Uh, is that how we're supposed to decide these things? I mean, it's just another... It's a higher programme of philosophy, if you want. It's, you know, we've got to reason our way to the truth on this. You don't. You, I mean, well, I Edward, we're you are trying to, to reason our way to the truth, aren't we? We're always. I mean, so yeah. so so as it were, moral uh, metaethics can't make moral discourse look more ordinarily uh, look look more orderly than it than it is. Right. So we we're, we're interested in the f- in a phenomenon which we didn't design. All sorts of people in, in, who are not philosophers take part in moral discourse, and say so when we look at that, the question is whether it's well regulated enough. What would count as a badly regulated uh, moral discourse then? Well, a badly regulated discourse would be, let's say, discourse about ice cream flavours, in which, you know, if I say I like chocolate and you say, well, I don't like chocolate, and we have a fight about it, then we're really wasting our time because there's no truth that we're about? What about if I say, all right... You like killing, but I don't like killing. I mean, isn't there something that I could say about other than the fact that we're disagreeing in what we like? I mean, can't yeah. I then go and ask the question, yeah, but you like something that's immoral, whereas I like something that's moral. Indeed, and you'd be, that would be one reason why we can go a lot further in our discussion about killing than we can in our discussion uh-huh. about ice cream flavour. So there might be something about the subject matter that means that, well, if one person likes one thing, another person likes another thing, we don't just leave it there. Um, I suppose that to, to come back to the word relativism, which yeah. Richard brought up, I suppose one of the one of the um, nasty things that might slip under slip in under the door if yeah. you go for the kind of view that I and I think Richard also favour in metaethics is that we might be unwittingly dragged into a form of moral relativism because you might have two things, both of which look well-regulated and which take place in different places or at different times and which reach different conclusions. And the question is, how do you achieve comparability between those two things? So, I mean, I take it that you have some... How do you compare theories, in other words? Uh, Yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Richard, if things are good or bad because they have some sort of property, which property and how does this work out? 
Um, when you say which property, what, what level are you speaking of? As in, well, what property makes things good or bad if things are good or bad? The property of goodness, of course. Yeah, <laughs> really? of, well, but that, that's, that's what people in metaethics like to say. Right, but what does that actually mean? I mean, do you think mm. there's something goodness that's sort of independent of uh, human minds, for instance? Um, so it seems plausible to me that it'll be that there will be some property of goodness that's independent of every particular human mind, whether it's independent of all of what everyone would believe if they're in some kind of perfect state or something right. or something about our nature in general. Um, something beyond that would seem a little bit odd to me but but i mean it, it seems to have to be independent of what anyone actually currently believes so it's a it's a function of human existence that there is such a thing as goodness or badness right well that seems a, a intuitively plausible view but fleshing it out it will become less plausible um right. so then you have to believe that there's something like a, a determinate human nature which will guide everyone to believing the same things are, well, it, are good you know i don't think belief is the same as truth is it but anyway, that's another issue. No. Uh, I, I, I think one can get... So, some problems can seem harder than they are mm. in meta-ethics if you get too fixated on the property of goodness. Right. Because I, I think that goodness is the most abstract moral property yeah. uh-huh. and that when people say uh, goodness is a supervenient property, which is a thing that's often thrown around in meta-ethics classes, one of the things that they ought to mean by that is that nothing can be barely good just as nothing can be barely coloured. Okay, you can't okay. just say, uh, well, my car is coloured, right? You've got to be able to... If you, unless you don't know what you're talking about when you use the word coloured, you've got to be able to follow that up by saying, it's blue. Right. And so, similarly, I think something can't be barely good. You've got to say that there's some more uh, determinate property which makes the thing good. And so you can... Goodness can seem terribly mysterious unless you remember that. Okay, so... Good is bad for better ethics. Uh, what what sort of <laughs> what sort of terminology would you use then if you don't want to use the be- good bad terminology? Well, I don't to want talk to not use it. I, I, it's 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 very it's impossible to do ethics without using that terminology. I just think that we we don't help ourselves if we think only about the properties of good and bad. Uh-huh. Just as we wouldn't help ourselves in a so what know, else in, in the paint I mean, okay, shop so if we what thought anything, what else do we need what else do we need to talk about just to avoid concentrating on what that? sorts of other properties yeah. could make yeah. things good so of course you okay. can have non-moral goodness for a start things can be good by by being good in non-moral ways um, but things can be good by being good in moral ways by being act, acts can be good by being honest or by being uh, kind things like that and then of course certain kind of moral philosopher wants to say yeah but you've just given me another evaluative property i want to know what non-moral non-evaluative property things are good in virtue of and i suspect there's no tidy answer to that so if you've got um like as you say a value property yeah and you don't you want to try and avoid the terms good or bad mm. presumably you want to try uh, good or evil as well right or wrong i mean how do you talk about morality while avoiding all these complex terms like good or bad you, you shouldn't you shouldn't avoid them I, as i say i don't think that there's any need to avoid them and you couldn't avoid them either but but let's just remember that things can't be barely good so if the property of goodness seems rather mysterious right. so people might say that there's a special moral sense that is needed to intuit its existence 
you might, if somebody told you a story about coloredness and didn't mention that things could only be coloured in virtue of being red, blue, green, etc., you might puzzle about how on earth can you cognise the property of coloredness. Well, I'm not sure I get your analogy. I mean, look, uh, it's sort of relying on the idea, isn't it, that uh, the idea of goodness is some sort of sense that you have, whereas can't you sort of uh, rationally work out what is good and bad? Isn't that possible? But you could probably only rationally work out what was good and bad by working out which lower-level good-making properties they had. So you, uh, it would be very hard to... Like, what do you mean, sorry? Well, honesty and kindness and things right, like that. So, so these are examples of good things, mm. uh, but you'd have to work out what they all had in common, for instance. Is that what you're saying? Um, I don't think... Well... Hmm, having in common, I think, is a bit of a weasel word, isn't it? So you could say, of course, red and green have in common the property of being coloured. Right. But remember that it's they, they have it in common in the special sense in which uh, any property such that one is an abstraction from the other has the first in common. Sorry, any two properties will have a property that's an abstraction from both of them in common. Sorry, I don't understand Well, that. look, I mean, what do... What do red and green have in common? They have the property of being coloured in common. Right, so honesty, and, to honesty and niceness, let's say, have the common... Common property of being good. But it doesn't, but doesn't show so that goodness is So why can't you define what you mean by good? Honesty. I mean, it's not the difficult question. <laughs> so <laughs> yes, what, is is. This, what is this thing that they <laughs> have in common yes. that makes them both good? Why can't you ask that question? They need not have anything in common that makes them both good. Well, then you're using good in two different ways, well, aren't what you? What do red and green have in common that make them both coloured? Well, they're Certainly both types of experiences that are, <laughs> you know, visual experiences of a certain sort. I wouldn't have said that that's what made them... No, but I, mean, I don't really want to talk about colours, but um, right. let's talk about good, can we? Uh, so I have an answer to right. this, but I mean, I'm not sure if it's helpful. So <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> far away. So my normal answer to what, 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 what is it for something to be good is that there's reasons to have positive attitudes to it so if something's right. good there's reasons to desire it or there's reasons to admire it if, if it's a good action for instance well um but that doesn't seem to help me much so ex- well it, it means that anything that's intrinsically uh, desirable is good by definition why can't you define good in yeah that that's way? fine I, I think you can but I, i'm not sure how that helps metaphorically in, mm. in the sense that, that you're interested in because I mean, that's a definition, but I mean, it's not... In order for it to be plausible definition, it has mm. to be not particularly illuminating. Mm. It's mm. telling you something that you right. kind of already know, right? I mean, it's, it's, quite, okay. it's quite clear that's the truth. Um, the same way if you try and define colour in terms of, well, it's all these perceptual experiences and we can give you a list of what they're right. like. That's not particularly illuminating, but I mean, that is what it is to Okay, be so you have to know colour by experiencing it, so maybe you have to know good by experiencing it, mm. but you can't define it further. Is that a fair summary of where we're sort of going? Well, well I think that, that when Richard says you can define good, he's, he's right. You can, you know, so when Moore said it's indefinable, he was... He, he was wrong. You can you can give quite a few fairly plausible definitions of it, but they're just not very illuminating definitions. When philosophers generally ask for a definition, they expect uh, ter- terms to uh, 
to be absent from the definition, problematic kinds of term to be absent from the definition that are present in the thing that you're trying to define. But of course, if someone says, well, what it means to say that something's good is to say that you have reasons to take a certain sort of attitude towards it. Well, what do you mean by reasons? You know, there's what's the status of those? What, what's the yeah, meta-ethics so can, of reason? So it doesn't get us much, or if you say to, to be good is to be worth valuing or something, well, all right, what does what, what makes something worth valuing? Raise all the same questions again. So you can just so. keep on going, answering, asking questions back into some indefinite sort of state of non-definition of things. You never get anywhere. It, it, by it's that a definition, way. but that doesn't take us out of the circle of ideas that we started in, I suppose. Okay. It's not a reductive definition. And I, and I guess that the kind of quest for definitions isn't really the, the quest for kind of making the, the metaphysical status of uh, ethics any less puzzling. And right. that seems to be w- what the puzzle is here, because you want to yeah. see, well, it's not quite like these natural discourses, but it's not like the taste discourses. So you want to see what discourse. the difference is between, yeah. uh, say, science and uh, opinion and ethics. Mm. But you also mm. want to do it in a way such that it vindicates ethics, that it means that we can keep on talking about ethics right. in the same way we okay. do. I mean, that, that's kind of one, <laughs> one, way, one way of thinking about metaphysics. Um, okay, um... Edward, if morality is objective, how do we account for the differences in moral values around the world? Well, one question... Not that I'm assuming that you believe that. But. Yeah. Well, one, one question to, to ask b- before one gives, tries to give uh, uh, answer to that, uh, that question is whether there really are such gross differences in moral opinion around uh-huh. the world as people think. So, I mean, there are some... Question of whether whether and under what conditions abortion is permissible. This is the kind of thing that that, that students want the meta ethics class to answer. You know, when I said, but you have to explain that yeah. the cupboard probably hasn't that got got that particular kind of goodie in it. Um, so there are some headline questions that are extremely controversial and that are evidently moral. But I wonder how many of them there really are. So and defining the moral is quite hard. Actually, the borderline between. The moral and the merely conventional is difficult to put one's right. finger on. Uh, um, so you, you think? Sorry. So you think there might be a core of morality that all people share, even though at the fringes there might be different weights given to them. Yeah, I think values. that might be right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you could also say that there are differences, some differences of moral in moral belief, and this is the, another kind of thing that the realist will want to say. Uh, or the believer in moral truth will want to say is that some differences in moral belief are explained in a way that is similar to differences in belief about empirical matters. For example, um, some people might think that it's always a requirement that women obey their husbands because they haven't had the opportunity to talk about it enough because they live in a society in which free discussions of questions of that sort is discouraged, for instance. Okay, so that's just a function. That of might, another reason why you might end up with funny beliefs about the, what the Earth does in relation to the sun. <laughs> in that case, don't we have to kind of assume that there are certain cultures or certain societies that have kind of a better access to um, moral claims, or that free discussion will improve your ability to make moral the quite? quite yeah, I, I mean, it seems problematic with certain discussions, like political discussions yes. about you know distributive justice and how we distribute um, wealth. I mean, that seems like it doesn't matter how developed your society goes, how much discussion you have, you'll still have quite a lot of disagreement. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> mm, mm. 
So you think that we shouldn't assume that where morality is concerned, free discussion will favour the discovery of truth? Well, it's very tempting to think that, but I wonder if we have enough reason to believe that. Um, what, what would be a reason yeah. not to believe it, as it were, given that it often does favour the discovery of truth in other... I think, you know, people can... You, you could say, um, don't ask me about a question like this. Don't ask me to mark that essay today because I'm in a bad mood. Yeah. Or a judge could say, don't put me on this case because I've just had such and such an experience that will mean I just can't look at it impartially. So these might be, these are moral or quasi-moral questions, questions where we know that uh, personal factors can interfere with judgment. And so it looks like um, we can identify the operation of bias and prejudice and so on. Sure, in but the question... Matters. And the that's question, the kind of thing which free discussion helps to get no, rid of. No, but the question now is, kind of that, uh, after two and a half thousand years of moral <laughs> disagreement, then yes. why, why, hasn't there, why isn't it converging onto some sort of consensus if there is some objective moral truth that is uh, you know, accessible by this process? I mean, ethics has been going on since at least Socrates in the written word in mm. Western society, which is two and a half thousand years ago. So why is there no convergence on what ethical truth is? Well, I mean, you're assuming that there isn't convergence. I, I'd say that there is a fairly high degree of convergence. Uh, OK. Like, on, so what's it converging on? I mean, and, and there's, the there's still. I mean, for instance, there's still utilitarians, or there's still people who believe that you should act out of duty, or there's still, uh, you know, virtue ethicists who believe sure. that virtue is about the cultivation of a good character. So there's all this. But these are philosophical disagreements, and remember that one of the, uh, I mean, of course, people who favour uh, utilitarian view will sometimes back different first-order views from non-utilitarians uh, but it's often a methodological assumption in utilitarian discussions that we have to match as closely as possible uh, what people would have said prior to adopting utilitarianism okay All right. so I mean, as, as it's it was, just a philosophical but, but, it's not just a philosophical I mean, it, it's, it's a <laughs> I mean, it is a philosophical disagreement, but it's, it's of course a philosophical dis disagreement that's supposed to have some ethical bite. But you might say that, look, if I'm a utilitarian and I can match your judgments in 99 cases out of 100, right. um, that shows that on the divergent judgment, it might give my uti new radical utilitarian view more credibility. But if mm -hmm. I diverge from you on everything and ought to take my... Yeah. So there's broadly moral agreement. But the disagreements are much more salient to us because right. they tend to be about things we mind about. OK. So, but it's like uh, the disagreements in science often indicate that the ultimate principle hasn't been found. Why isn't it the same in ethics? So, I mean, like the disagreements over uh, black body radiation that paved the way for quantum mechanics... You know, that was a minor disagreement in an area of physics, but it opened up the whole, a whole new vista of physics. Why isn't it the same with uh, these minor moral disagreements? Why, mm. not, why can't they pave the way for something that we haven't discovered yet in moral theory, for instance? I guess the, um, with, with your disagreements in science, I guess that the kind of status of the disagreement is slightly different. Right. So you, you, you've got different theories of explaining phenomena. Right. But in ethics, it's a kind of more... Uh, the different answers are more clearly demarcated. You know, it's whether this practice is right 
wrong or, or neither. Okay. So if Lovely there's choice. always good. So to take one example, um, which it seems like there's been certain amounts of convergence or progress in. Think about violence, history of violence. Mm-hmm. There's a lot less violence now than there was. Um, a lot less. Um, but of course, there was always disagreement about whether violence in particular scenarios is like wrong right. or right or not. Mm, so the like mere in war, disa- for instance, yeah. so the mere disagreement wouldn't indicate that we should go for a different answer because right. the different answers are already there. I think would be one slight difference. Mm, mm. Okay. So Edward, what does it mean when somebody says something is right or wrong? What are they actually say? They actually say, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, saying you shouldn't do it or that it's justified uh-huh. but is there any sort of basis to their uh, shouldn'ts and their justifications right well I think here again let me just I mean we, we can talk about whatever whatever you want but um, if, if we're to keep to the subject of meta-ethics right. um, I need to say the thing that the, the disappointing thing that I said uh, 20 right. minutes ago which is look there are two questions here one is give me a criterion of rightness and wrongness which and one way of giving that. a criterion would be to say what's the feature that all right all and only right actions have in common right. and by the way make sure it's going to be a decent criterion it's easier to identify than rightness itself so if, if it was you know producing the greatest happiness of the greatest number or you know happening uh, at 15 minutes past the hour or something right. that's easier to identify <laughs> right. than 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 rightness and so ah oh, at last it be ethics would be easier moral judgment would be easier than it was before but meta ethics is not in the business right. of saying that of providing a criterion of that kind um, meta ethics is in the is in the business of um, saying well what are we after when we argue about whether something's right or wrong so what, are we that, looking what are for we truth? Oh. Are we looking for something that's in some sense our own construction? Is it merely a trading of grunts? So I guess that's what, that's what I'm really asking you. What What is the answer to this sort of meta well, I question? I think we're pursuing truth. I think okay. we're pursuing truth. We are pursuing truth. Yeah. Like objective truth that's independent of human... Well, it's not as strongly independent of human concerns right. as some other kinds of truth. Right. You um, need humans for it to be about, at least, yes. right? And to, to, at the risk of making things even more uh, abstract, right. um, I suppose there is a, a kind of meta-meta-ethical question here, uh-huh. which is, um, if we say that, uh, well, if we say that moral discourse is re- well regulated in certain sorts of ways, uh-huh. um, and we say that uh, this is a sign that what we're doing is pursuing truth here, so there can be truth in moral matters. Right. Um, are we really being realists about in meta-ethics, uh-huh. or are we being constructivists, or something less than? Are we being something less than many realists aspired to yeah, when they we, began uh, that is discussion? It a, is it a social construct, or is it something that exists independent of society? I think is those. Yes, so look at, look at a parallel discussion in the philosophy of mathematics. So few people dispute that there can be truth in mathematics, but some people say that uh, what we're trying to do is map the relative positions of mathematical objects, which are strongly independent of human, cogn- human mind, and other people would say that in some sense mathematics is a human construction. And the people who say the latter don't think of themselves as realists, okay. don't think of themselves as mathematical realists. So why is it that if what moral truth is 
is, as it were, the goal of a well-ordered discourse. Right. We're entitled to call ourselves realists about morality rather than, let's say, constructivists of some kind. So there are certainly some people out there in the meta-ethical jungle who don't think that that is enough to qualify as a realist. I mean, I suspect that both Richard and I would disagree with that. But Yeah. Sorry, don't want to put words into a man. <laughs> okay, uh, I think we're going to have to wrap it up now. So uh, you've been listening to the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance. Um, right, next week I think it's a discussion on Islam. Uh, if you like this sort of thing, you should read Philosophy Now magazine and buy my books, uh, Meta Revolution. Uh, thank you to Francisco, and see you next week. Bye. <laughs>